0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Joshua is about real life right now. And a lot of times, you know, people interpret Joshua as it's about salvation. It's about eternity. And it makes sense. You cross the Jordan, enter the promised land, and maybe so, that's possible. But what we found out so far, especially the past few weeks, is that the the promised land is full of problems, isn't it? I mean, this is no paradise. This is no playground. This is a battleground for God's People. And so they've experienced enemies. They've experienced opposition. They've experienced their own sin. It's full of challenges. It's full of uncertainties. And you know what that sounds a lot like? My life. Doesn't it? That sounds a lot like real life. Now, we left them last week. They were, remember, they stood between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They heard the blessings of the law and the curses of the law, shouted back and forth, saying, there's two options in this land. There's the option of blessing and the option of cursing. And there was this amazing worship ceremony. I mean, they they wrote the whole law, they read the whole law, they offered sacrifices. It was a great worship service, and they're they're reaffirming their dedication to God's word and to, to all that he says. But now in chapter nine, we're gonna find out while they were worshiping, their enemies were plotting against them. You know, the Bible says every believer, all of us in here have three enemies. There's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. And I don't want to be uh, too dogmatic about this, but I think a lot of commentators say, and and I think it's true, I think so far in Joshua, we have seen representations of each of those three enemies. So Jericho, in a lot of ways, represents the world. Now, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And how did God's people overcome Jericho? Well, they put that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, which represents Christ, right in the middle of the congregation, and they just walked around and turned left. And God conquered Jericho way more than they conquered Jericho. And then we saw the city of I, which represents the flesh. You know, we, we see, we want, we take for ourselves. And throughout the whole book, God has said, consecrate your whole heart to me, Remember, it's all from me, and it's all for me. But your flesh says, no, 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 don't dedicate it all to God. Dedicate, dedicate you to you. And today we're going to meet Gibeon, which in a lot of ways represents our enemy, Satan, the devil, who is called in the Bible the deceiver. And that's what's going to happen today. God's people will be deceived. And as happens in real life, When God's people are deceived, it turns into an absolute mess. I mean, it gets real messy real fast. And they're going to have to live with the consequences of their doubt and of that deception. But you know what? Just like real life, it is a mess full of God's grace and God's glory. In fact, his, his grace shines brightest in the middle of the mess. And by the time we get through the mess, and by the time we get to the end of the chapter, it is going to end in worship of God. And that's our big idea today. It all ends in worship. All of it. It all ends in worship. So let's look at Joshua 9. We'll start in verse 1. It says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon... The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Termites. That's not in there. Heard this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So here's what's happening. Uh, the enemies are uniting. And so this whole area, this whole land had been populated by independent city states So you got a town with walls and a fortress, and they're their own thing. And they really hated the city-state down the road. They've been fighting for generations. They couldn't get along. They're always warring against each other. But now they have a common enemy called the Israelites. And they're hearing about how the Israelites are picking off one city at a time. And so they say, well, we better band together. And so we can maybe defeat God's army. They, they know what's going on. here. Here's what hit me this week about this. And it's been through all the chapter. I just haven't noticed it. They all believe in God. All of these people, all of the ites, they all believe in God. All the enemies we've encountered so far are certain that God is real, that he was powerful. They believe God's word. They seem to know that Israel was directed to take this land and that God has promised them his land and will do what he promised. They all believe that. But no one other than Rahab repents. The rest decide they're going to trust in themselves. Jericho's going to trust in their walls. All these otherites are going to band together and they're going to trust in their collective might. Okay? Then you got the Gibeonites, and the Gibeonites know that's not going to go well. We can't do that. And so they decide they need to do something different. And you can read the summary, verse 3 through 5. They decide they're going to trust in their own deception, okay? And so they kind of take the if you can't beat them, join them approach, and they say we're going to try to trick these Israelites into making a treaty with us, a covenant, and so that they can't attack us. So what they're going to do is they're going to exploit what they think is like a loophole in the law. So God had told them, the law said, Israel is forbidden. They cannot make a covenant with any of the people in the promised land. But some of the people from farther away that don't occupy the promised land, they are allowed to make covenants with those people. And so they decide, hey, we're going to deceive Israel into thinking we're from far away. We're going to trick them into a treaty. And so what they do is they They make all their old stuff, their stuff look old. So their clothes, they beat them up, put patches on it, their sacks and all that. Make it look like they've traveled a long way. They get old, stale bread, so it looks like they don't have any fresh food, anything like that. And so they walk right up to Israel, and they say, behold, we're from a distant land. You know, it's like me driving from a house to church and getting out of the car. You You know that, like, stretch you do when you've been on a long road trip, and you get out, and you're like, oh, me! Oh! That's these Gibeonites, as they walk up to Israel, like, oh, we've... We've come from so far. We're so tired. And they're wanting to trick God's people and to make a deal. And notice they're using God's word to do it. These Gibeonites knew God's word. They believed God's word. But instead of submitting to it for God's glory, they're going to use it for their own purposes. And men and women, this is just how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He he says, hey, God says you're the Son of Man. Hey, if that's true, then great. Let's make a deal. Let's have an alliance together. Satan was saying to Jesus, Jesus, hey, I believe you're the Son of Man, just like God said. But but why don't you take it into your own hands? In fact, here, here, I'm such a nice guy, I will help you. No need to seek God. No need to wait on God. And notice the craftiness of their deception. Let's pick it back up in verse 7. says, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's the people of Gibeon, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? And they said to him, oh, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey. Go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. So Israel, in verse 7, Israel starts off suspicious. Eh, maybe you're not who you say you are. But y'all, they're, they're thrown off the scent because the Gibeonites' response sounds, it sounds so spiritual. We're here because of the name of the Lord your God. We've heard all about him. We've heard about his fame. We've heard about his power, all that he did in Egypt. I Man, it sounds so pious, so spiritual, doesn't it? I mean, what a testimony, Sounds like they're amazed by the greatness of God, amazed by the children of Israel. But notice the deception. They say, oh, we we heard about all that happened in Egypt. But y'all, that's not where they're there. They're not there because of all that God did in Egypt. They're there because of all that is happening in Canaan. They're there because of what happened in Jericho and I right next door. But they can't say that because it'll blow their cover. If they're from a distant land, they got to say, oh, we heard about all that God did in that distant land, way over there. Otherwise, Israel would know they weren't from a far country. So they only disclose the information that works in their favor. They are lying and they are deceiving. You know, Jesus said about Satan in John eight forty four. it says, When he lies, he speaks his native tongue. In fact, he is a liar and the father of lies. It is what he does best. He's very good at deceiving God's people. He's smarter than you. He's smarter than me. He knows the words to say, and he can talk the talk better than anybody. In fact, their talk, their confession about God, it mirrors Rahab's. It sounds almost almost just like what Rahab said. But the difference between Rahab and the Gibeonites, you see, it lies not so much in the words they say, in their word choice, the words that come out of their mouth, but it allows in what they desired. See, Gibeon, they want to be allies with God's people. Rahab wanted to be one of God's people. It says she became like a native Israelite and dwelled among them. She completely changes team, teams, completely submits to God. Gibeon wants to save their kingdom Rahab wanted to build God's kingdom. And so get, there, said, hey, let's, let's work out a deal for our peaceful coexistence. Okay? You can be over here doing your thing. We'll be over here doing our thing. You have yours. We have ours. Rahab said, I know it already all belongs to God. It's all his. None of it's mine. I don't want my kingdom. I want to be a part of his kingdom. And that's the same thing with the commander of the Lord's army in front of Joshua. Before we head into Jericho, let's get settled one thing. I'm not in your army, but you can be in my army. See, the difference between talking the talk and walking the walk, y'all, it lies in the same themes we've seen over and over again in this book. Things like consecration, repentance, worship, obedience to God's word. Anyone can say the right things, but who, like like Joshua did, will take off their sandals and will fall down and worship God and say, my life is yours. That's the difference. So Israel, in this moment, they take the bait. They take the bait and they believe the lie and the text is explicit about what went wrong. So let's pick it up in verse 14 and 15. It says, so the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So verse 14, y'all, is completely unique so far in Joshua. Almost never does the author say so plainly what went wrong. You know, usually it's like a, a, a fairy tale or something. We get the story and then we got to kind of interpret and deduce the moral of the story and what went wrong and, and exactly what the mistake was. Here we are told clearly. They did not seek the counsel of the Lord. Now, they did their due diligence, didn't they? They examined the bread and wine. They launched an investigation. They even sought counsel with one another. They discussed it with one another and talked it over. They acted very logically, I think you would say. But they didn't ask God about it. The text is clear, too. It it implies that if they had prayed, they would have been spared. He's saying God's direction was available but was ignored. It's just as James 4, 2 says, they had not because they asked not. And I I think this is a, a problem that's a little bit unique in the promised land. You know, it's not really a problem in the wilderness. In the wilderness, you wake up with your tummy growling and there's no food around. And you know the only way you're going to eat that day is if God miraculously provides the manna. So as soon as you wake up, you look up. And you're like, all right, big man, help me out here. You seek God immediately because you know you won't last a day without him. That's usually, it's usually not a problem when you face impossible obstacles like the walls of Jericho. You know, you know that wall is impossible for you. You're desperate, so you, you seek him. You seek his power to do what you can't do. But what about after you've seen some victories? What about when you have some resources? And there doesn't appear to be some ominous threat standing right in front of you, looking you in the face. Too often, then, we fail to seek the Lord. Too often we seek God's power in a crisis, but we ignore his wisdom in everyday life thought about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 this week. It says, and many of you know this verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and what will he do? He will direct your path. Now, many of us know what that verse says, but we live differently. We often live as if it says, you know, acknowledge him in some of your ways. Acknowledge him in the ways where you can't do it yourself. Acknowledge him in the ways where you you Think you, you are desperate. But men and women, God wants you to seek him, acknowledge him in all of your ways. And he wants to actively guide you. That, that's what the text is saying here. Not just when you're desperate, not just when you don't know what to do. In all of your ways, he wants to guide you and me. Now, this is not to say, the text is not saying, you can't take a breath or tie your shoe without asking God first. That's not what he's talking about. Understand, this is an important matter in the law. They showed that they knew it was a matter of great importance because they knew they were in a difficult situation. They did an investigation. They talked it over. They knew this was important. And they knew they were going to make a covenant. And I don't know if you've noticed, but God tends to take covenants very, very seriously. And it's such an important matter in the midst of debate, in the midst of investigation, they didn't even pause to seek God's will. So understand here, this text, it's not meant to paralyze us in indecision. It's here to warn us of our vulnerability to deception when left to our own devices. It's telling us, beware believers, beware Christians of that subtle unbelief, that subtle type of unbelief that assumes I've got this under control. You're setting yourself up to be deceived by your enemy. Well, they don't seek God. They're deceived. They make a covenant covenant with Gibeon, but eventually this deception is discovered. And and so now they're left trying to figure out, okay, now what do we do? Now we have a real mess. I mean, we've made a covenant. Should we stick to it? But that covenant was under false pretenses, so should we just wipe them out, squash them like a bug? What do we do? I'll tell you, there's not a clean-cut answer. There's not an answer that just fixes all the problems. But here's what's amazing. Here's what comes out. God's glory and grace shines through it all. So let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live. lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live so they may become cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So now we're, now we're in a mess. Now there's division. The people are upset. They're grumbling at all the leaders, you know, way different than today. They, that's what they used to do back then, okay? And the text implies, y'all, the reason they're grumbling is because they're upset now that they don't get the spoils of war. They don't get to attack the city and take some of the plunder now. And the Gibeonites over there, I mean, they're begging for their life. They've been busted. They, they're caught. And they, they know they made a covenant based on a lie. They're not sure what's going to happen. So they're, they're begging and pleading. But Joshua, the leader, say, but there is a covenant in place now. So, y'all, we can't just act like it never happened. We're going to be forced to live with the consequences of the decision we made. And it, in 19 and 20 makes it clear, Joshua had... There's a lot to worry about here. There's a lots of concerns, but it's clear that Joshua had one main concern, one driving force in his decision-making, the name of the Lord. He says, we, we swore by God's name, and so to break the oath would be to dishonor God among the nations, and I'm not willing to do that. It would imply to a watching world, God cannot be trusted. See, Israel in this promised land is inextricably tied to God. How they are is how he is to everyone who is watching. And so if they don't keep their covenants, that must mean God doesn't keep his covenants. And Joshua says, I'm not willing to go there. So he did the thing that was less convenient, that was less profitable, but would bring the greatest glory to God. Listen, when you don't know what to do with the mess you've made, you'll never go wrong glorifying God's name. Even if it's less convenient, even if you'll have the, to live the rest of your life dealing with the effects. I know many of us in here, we've made mistakes and you know what, maybe you've been wanting to be free of that mistake or make it like that mistake never happened. Well, the answer might not be to undo it, but to honor God through it. You know, probably the most common example Hardest example to deal with that we see in real life is marriage. You know, sometimes it happens, uh, some people are unbelievers and they they go and they they get married and then years later one of them becomes a believer and they get saved and they look back and they're like, oh no, I made a huge mistake back then. Was the right answer then to, to go and break that covenant? No, no, no. It's to glorify God and trust him right where you are. You know what? Or we have some people here, there's plenty of people that are on their multiple marriages, third, fourth, fifth marriage, and they wake up and say, man, I kind of made a mistake breaking those covenants in the past. Was the right answer for them to go back and find that first spouse and say, hey, remember me? Maybe, I don't know, but I know you can honor God, you can glorify his name right where you are, right in the covenant you've made now that you find yourself living in right now. You know, we have to acknowledge, like, plenty of people are divorced, aren't they? And lots of well-meaning Christians would like to make them feel like, well, you can't honor God until you go back and make it like that never happened. And listen, sometimes people go back, sometimes, I don't know. But the text is saying this. The text is saying, number one, seek the Lord. Number two, you can't undo it. You can't pretend like it never happened. But you can glorify God right where you are today. So Joshua decides, he says, we're going to honor this covenant. And now all those Gibeonites know that God keeps his promises. And then God does something amazing. He uses this mess, and it is a mess, guys. It will have far-reaching consequences all throughout the Old Testament. But he uses this mess to draw them close to him. And it ends in worship. Verse 27 says, But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in in the place that he should choose. So, instead of judgment, instead of slaughter, instead of condemnation, we see patience. We see second chance. We see worship. See, what's happening now is these Gibeonites, you know, you're like, Oh, they cut wood and got water. What's the big deal? They're doing that in the service of the temple. They're cutters of wood and drawers of water in the temple, in the house of worship. And so they will spend their whole lives facilitating the worship of God. Now, God could have put them anywhere. He could have put them on latrine duty for the rest of their lives. Instead, instead, Although they attempted deception, it will only end in more and greater worship of God. And think about what they will be exposed to while they're there. Every day for generations, they will be watching as innocent animals are sacrificed to make atonement for sins. They will be watching every day for generations as priests intercede for the people and proclaim mercy and forgiveness. They will hear a whole nation of priests worship and proclaim that there is no God like our God, who created the heavens and the earth, who was gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These people who thought they could pull a fast one on God will have a front row seat on how to have a relationship with God. Well, men and women, there is so much to glean from this chapter and from this story. I want to point out just a few, and then we'll close. First is this. God can turn your mistake into ministry. God can turn your mistake into ministry. You know, there's the Gibeonites' deception. There's Israel's neglect in, the, in this whole mess, and it only ended with greater worship of God not only do the people end up serving in the temple y'all their land to the land of Gibeon it will be where they set up the tabernacle first king three says Solomon will make a thousand sacrifices right there in Gibeon and Gibeon is where he asked God for wisdom and God gave it to him how about that isn't that amazing the place where God's people fail to seek God's wisdom Solomon will receive his wisdom from God and you know what For you, one day, one day you are going to wake up in the middle of your mistake. You'll think you've blown it. It's all ruined. But listen, this chapter is showing us his sovereignty is not thwarted by our stupidity. God can and will set up his tabernacle right in the middle of your Gibeon. And then... Then what often happens, I've seen it a hundred times, what often happens is then some time goes by and and God starts to use this mess for his glory and he starts to redeem it. And then you know what happens? You're going to meet someone else who wakes up in the middle of the same mistake you did. And then God will, just like the Gibeonites, he will use you to facilitate other people worshiping him. He will turn your mistake into ministry. I've seen it over and over again. And then it all ends in worship of him. So listen, I know Father is the Satan of lies, lives, but you know what, guys? The joke's on him. God gets the last laugh. Second is this. Common sense is not spiritual wisdom. Common sense is not the same as spiritual wisdom. Listen, you are never so mature, smart, capable, experienced that you do not need to seek the Lord. So make it a part of your regular daily life. Ask the Lord. Thank the Lord. Bring up to the Lord what's going on in your life. God loves to reveal himself to us. You know, there's an old proverb that says, it's better to ask the way 10 times than to go down the wrong road once. Now, every man in here disagrees with that, but it's true. You know, so many parables that Jesus, when he teaches about prayer, so many of them are about persistence. He's like, I I want you to try to bug me, you pray, so much. So why don't we? I think it's because we think, hey, I got this. I I know what to do when we begin to lean on our own understanding, lean on our own common sense. But common sense is not spiritual wisdom. The last thing is this, what the text is saying to us today. Have humility. Have humility. Listen, you can be deceived, and the enemy is really good at it. You know, in the Bible, never forget, Satan gets to be the lion, you are the sheep. And just to are clear, that's not a compliment to you, okay? I know, I want to be the lion. I wish I was the lion. He's smart, and he's ferocious, and he's strong, and he gets Disney movies made after him and every, all this stuff. Nobody wants to be the sheep, but that's what we are. And the enemy will use the same tools as Gibeon. Notice, number one, they were deceived by what they hear. These great-sounding words of faith, how great God is. It sounds so spiritual. Number two, they were deceived by what they see. Here, look at our bread. Look at our sacks. Look at our clothes. Look at our wineskin. Come look. And how easy is it today? How easy is it for Christians to see something on TV or on YouTube, hear some radio or podcast, and be deceived? And y'all, in our day, we are so far removed from the actual lives of actual people, we have no way of knowing, is that Rahab or is that Gideon or Gibeon? Is this someone building God's kingdom or trying to trick God's people into an alliance to save their own kingdom? You know, the truth is many Christians today can't tell the difference between spiritual maturity and charisma. I mean, if it sounds good and it looks good, it must be from God. You know, a couple years ago, I'll never forget this. I just happened to look up what was the number one best-selling book on Lifeway. So the number one best-selling book, Christian book of the year. And you know what? It wasn't even a Christian book. Y'all, you can't make this stuff up. And I don't mean it was like, you know, about the Bible and stuff, and I just disagreed with it. No, the author made no claims that this is a Christian book. It was just kind of self-help. Uh, Same thing as like Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, that type of thing. It was the best-selling Christian book of the year. And this this author, which more power to him, filling arenas with people who were convinced they were going to hear a Christian message. In reality, it's simply a charismatic person sharing common sense advice. And today, so many Christians cannot tell the difference. And listen, I'm no different. You know, if something sounds winsome, I'm tempted to buy it hook, line, and sinker without seeking the Lord, without comparing it to God's word. You know, another place this comes across a lot of times is when someone's dating an unbeliever. You know, and that other person, listen, they know how to say a few buzzwords. They'll come to church every once in a while to to appease the other person. And listen, everyone on the outside sees it. I mean, everyone, it's clear to everyone, like, uh, oh, they're, eh, they're not really into this. They're just doing it because they're dating, right? We, everyone can tell except the person in the relationship because they're so beautiful or they're so handsome or they make me feel so good. And so it's so easy to become totally deceived by what we see and what we hear. And then we make an allegiance with someone we shouldn't. You know, listen. I would be failing you as a pastor in our time if I didn't warn you. Our culture is filled with authors, businesses, politicians, websites, media that would love to make an alliance with you. And they know how to deceive you with what you hear. They will say all the right things. They will quote the Bible and sound so spiritual. They know how to deceive you with what you see. Look, look at all we're doing for this cause. Oh, what's this? A 10-second video clip with no context to make you angry and trust us? Right? We see this everywhere. But they are saving their own kingdom, not building his. They are not Rahab. They are Gibeon. So be very careful who you make allegiances with. Have humility. You can be deceived. Seek the Lord, men and women. I'll tell you the the telltale sign. And this is where each and every one of us have to check our own heart. Ask yourself, does this appeal to me because it builds my kingdom or their kingdom or his kingdom? Because remember, men and women, it all ends in worship. And that's not worship of me. That's not worship of you or anyone else. It all ends in worship of him. And if that's where it all ends, nothing else is is worth my allegiance right now. One more thing I want us to remember, and we're going to do it. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. So I'm going to ask Adam to come on back up, and we're going to do our so what to close the sermon. And y'all, this is why, this is why every week we've closed the sermon by doing our so what. We want to take time to seek the Lord and ask him how he wants us to use his word in our lives. And so in these next few moments, don't waste these moments. We're just going to give you a minute or two. Seek the Lord. Have some time with them. Ask him, you know, is there a way that you want to use my mistake for your ministry? Have I been using common sense as a substitute for spiritual wisdom? Or do I need to have humility? Where am I vulnerable to the deceptions of the enemy? We'll take a few moments and let's all seek the Lord together.